0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel.
1: The reading this evening comes from Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and and up, Yep. (laughs) Apollonia they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and providing that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as the men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds when the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have spoken to us In it, we are thankful that you have spoken to us by your son, Jesus. Help us now to be uh, eager in our reception of it, that we might, like the Bereans, hear and receive. We pray that you would transform us. We pray that during this time together, uh, the words of our hearts and the meditations of our, or the words of our thoughts, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, Christ our King. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, there's a few that I haven't. Uh, So I would love to meet you after the service. Uh, We've been working our way through the book of Acts, and this chapter is a good one. This first half that you just heard Jess read and then what's coming next week. But before we get there, uh, when I was a kid, my parents showed me and my sisters an old Gene Hackman movie that was like a huge blockbuster when my parents were in high school. Uh, It's called The Poseidon Adventure, and I loved it as a kid. Uh, The movie is set on a huge luxury ocean liner and in the middle of a storm, the whole boat capsizes, turns completely over. Gene Hackman then for the rest of the movie has to lead uh, a small group of survivors to the top of the boat, which is actually the bottom of the boat because the whole thing is upside down. So the whole movie is actually really disorienting because the whole set is flipped upside down. Uh, What's up is down and what was down is now up up, and the whole boat is all the while taking on lots and lots of water. in 2006, I heard they remade it, but I heard it was terrible, so I never watched it. Uh, mostly because I didn't wanna ruin a movie from my childhood that had always captured my imagination. Well, as we have been following Paul and Silas and Timothy throughout uh, Turkey on their way through these last chapters of Acts and now into Macedonia and into Greece, some of the folks that they meet accuse them of flipping the world upside down. In reality, we're going to see uh, that the boat, the world, has always been upside down. It's always been taking on water. It is not operating. It is not moving in the way it was designed. And the announcement of Jesus' kingdom that these men, Paul and Silas and Timothy, are bringing to these Macedonian towns is actually setting the world right. It is the anti-Poseidon adventure. It is the Jesus adventure. Boo. Uh, But if you, if you, like these people, if you personally or your whole culture or your society have always lived in an upside down boat, the world that you have always lived in is upside down, then having it set right is actually quite disorienting. It's a major disruption to the way that you have always lived, thought, and seen the world. So we're going to consider two responses to this world-flipping gospel. Two responses in two towns. First, with an angry rejection, and then a hungry reception. Now, it's a bit more nuanced than that because we're going to see that there's a bit of both of those responses in both cities, but these are two good big umbrella categories for us to think through. That of an angry rejection and a hungry reception. So first of all, An angry rejection. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they've moved on from Philippi, where we last saw them in Acts chapter 16, and they keep heading west along the the top of the Aegean Sea between the, the Turkish and then the Greek peninsula. They finally stop over here at the top left elbow of this sea at a pretty important port city of Thessalonica. Now, unlike Philippi, where we saw them, there is a synagogue here in Thessalonica. So they go there on three consecutive Sabbath days, three weeks of Saturdays amongst the Jewish men of the town. Again, they, these people, Paul is likely thinking, these folks in the synagogues, they ought to know that the fulfillment of their hopes and dreams, the fulfillment of their entire existence has come. Jesus, Messiah, And they ought to be the lowest hanging fruit for belief and reception of this gospel announcement of the kingdom of Jesus. So Paul goes there for three weeks, reasoning with them, Luke says in verse 2, from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, for the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead. Just like the disciples who, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, who these two. Disciples who were leaving Jerusalem disappointed after the crucifixion of Jesus. It was over. It had ended. The movement of Jesus had ended in their minds. He really wasn't the Messiah. He really wasn't going to be the one to deliver us from oppression. And on that road, the resurrected Jesus asked them in Luke 24, he asks them, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus, there on that road, and Paul here in Thessalonica had to correct the misunderstanding that Jesus had come to conquer physical enemies through power. Rather, he had come to conquer a far older and far deadlier, a more dangerous spiritual enemy, he had come to conquer that enemy, not through power, but through weakness, through humility, through suffering. He had not first come to liberate captives from societal oppression, but he had come to liberate captives from spiritual oppression. And all of Israel's story was pointing to, was preparing for a mighty king and a suffering servant who was one in the same. That he would draw all people into the presence of God through the forgiveness of their sins, through the washing of their consciences, through his death and resurrection, that they, individual people, then formed into a body now would be united to him. The body now united to him, the head, as their representative king of glory. Now it's been said that that walk down the Emmaus Road would have been the greatest Bible study or even the greatest sermon ever to have been preached. Many of us would have loved to have listened in as he was, as Jesus was explaining himself throughout the Old Testament scriptures to these disciples. But I would have loved to have been here as well on these three consecutive Saturdays, hearing Paul reason from the Old Testament scriptures, showing them of a Christ who would suffer for them doing the same kind of thing that Peter and Stephen did earlier in Acts, turning to the Psalms and to the prophets, to then finally get to the point where he would say in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed, the Promised One of God. So now, if, that is the tr- if, if that's true, that Jesus is the Christ, how should your lives now change here in Thessalonica? Like how? I mean, even just if they had the short-sighted temporal announcement that like a son of David had restored the throne in Jerusalem. How might that change your life? If the king had returned to take his throne in Jerusalem, now turn that knob to 11. Because it is not just a temporary throne in Jerusalem. It is not just an earthly throne, but the son of David has taken his eternal throne at the right hand of the father in heaven. The king is on his heavenly throne and the kingdom of God is breaking in. Now what? And guess what? Verse four, some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. There are devout Greeks, that that is uncircumcised worshipers of God, people like Cornelius that we've seen, or Lydia. And speaking of Lydia, like her, a few of the leading women, likely the, the wealthy women of Thessalonica, had also become followers of Jesus. They had become people of the way, the way of Christ. People who have come to God in honesty about their weakness and their rebellion. They had come to Christ for forgiveness and now filled with his spirit, walking like Jesus and walking with Jesus in humility and in love and in grace. They had become Christians. Their lives had fundamentally changed. Now, as has been the case with Jesus and every city in which Jesus has been preached so far in Acts, This doesn't go over so well. Those who are in power in Thessalonica hate this announcement. The Jewish leaders get some wicked men, they start a mob, and soon the whole city is in an uproar. The mob shows up at Jason's house. We don't know much about Jason, other than he had likely just become a Christian here in Thessalonica, and he had invited Paul and the guys to, like, crash at his place so this mob shows up at Jason's house, and they are banging on the door, demanding that he, ha- that he hand over these dangerous men. But they aren't home. These men aren't, so they drag Jason himself out and make some really serious accusations. This mob says in verses 6 and 7, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The world has been turned upside down by their preaching. But why? I mean, it seems like all they're doing is just kind of hanging out in the synagogues, reasoning from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Christ. Doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. Well, it could be that these Jewish leaders had whipped up an exclusively Jewish mob. And like Paul has experienced before, these leaders do not like their power and their tradition being upset. Luke even references their jealousy in verse 5. We know that to be true, that any time people who had previously had a previously large following that now starts to siphon off some of their followers to other leaders— This would be expected, that they would be jealous of losing some of their influence. But to get a whole city into an uproar, even we might find out later in the letter of 1 Thessalonians that it seems like it's not just the Jews who are upset about this, but it's the whole city. We get the sense that this is a much bigger deal than the just small Jewish population in town. This has become a city-wide rejection of Paul and the preaching of Jesus. Why? What's the big deal? Well, we've got some clues in this text. We could also consider what, again, what Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church later in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. There, Paul reminds them. He says in chapter 1, verse 5, that our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. There seems to be something Serious going on here, and not just what Paul was saying and how it was being announced, but even how the new Thessalonian Christians were responding to this announcement. verse 8 of chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and to Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Their reputation has gone out to the whole world. Their response to the gospel of Jesus as king has become worldwide news. And what is some of that news? Paul later goes on to say how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So it could be that all of this has happened in three weeks. Or perhaps even just thinking through how Paul Thing, reflects on how the, the time spent with them, how they like gave of their lives to be with them and treated them as, uh, as children caring for them. It could be that maybe they just went to the synagogue for three weeks, and they perhaps stayed in Thessalonica a little bit longer. Either way, though, these new Thessalonian Christians had turned from worshiping the idols of the culture, and they had become a bold and virtuous people, so much so that people across the sea had heard of them, This kind of corporate church life will turn the structures of a city upside down. As we'll see in chapter 19, where in Ephesus another riot starts because the idol maker's business is starting to take a big hit because all these new Christians are no longer buying the idols. Similarly, perhaps here the Thessalonian economy might have very much been upended. Maybe they even begin speaking, these new Christians. They begin speaking against injustice, speaking and protesting against exploitation. Both in Thessalonica and as we'll see in just a minute in Berea, Luke makes note of leading women becoming Christians. As I shared a few years ago, when we were spending a few weeks thinking about the, both the similarities and the differences between men and women, often, often Paul, especially in our modern culture, Paul is portrayed as this like harsh misogynist. But if Paul and the early church were misogynists, then the first several centuries of Christian women sure did not get that memo. In a Greco-Roman world where two-thirds of all humans were male, primarily because of infanticide, if you had a daughter, or the neglect Of daughters. Two-thirds in that world where two-thirds of the humans were male, two-thirds of the early church in the first three centuries were women. While Christianity was wildly unpopular in the world because you, as we're seeing here and as we'll continue to see, you paid a high societal cost to become a Christian, women nevertheless flocked to it in droves. They didn't see it as a place of hostility or marginalization or of misogyny. They saw it as a wonderfully refreshing place to live and to be. In a Greco-Roman world that didn't care about male sexual fidelity, Christianity demanded it. In a Greco-Roman world that celebrated and allowed for divorce for any reason, early Christianity prohibited it, apart from very narrow reasons. In a Greco-Roman world that murdered infant daughters, sold child brides into sexual slavery or into temple prostitution, the early church said no No, no, no. Every human, male or female, bears the image of God and carries inherent dignity, inherent honor, inherent worth, inherent value. No more. And so women are not only important for someone like Luke to make note of, just that women happened to be becoming Christians— But while they were not pastors, women like Lydia in Philippi or Phoebe in Rome were well-known and respected hosts of churches. They were looked to as godly examples. They were not marginalized or ignored. Now to our ears, all that sounds like an immediate given. Of course. In fact, we demand equality. We demand equal rights because they are rights. The Enlightenment and the Declaration of Independence tells us so. But in his big-time bestseller called Sapiens, the atheistic Yuval Noah Harari says that. He says, if we do not believe in the Christian myth about God, about creation and souls, what does it mean that all people are created equal? Evolution is based on difference, not on equality. So there's no such thing as inalienable rights if there is no God. There is merely power and pleasure. But, like we saw in Philippi, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, slave and free, are equally coming to the cross with nothing but empty hands. Empty hands of faith that Christ might fill them. They all come, no matter their background, their gender, their social standing, They all come to the cross dignified and respected. The cross of Christ welcomes all to come. It demands all to come. But then it demands that we, those who have come, then turn right around with the same kind of response to all. To all. With love, with dignity, with honor, and without partiality. But again, this is upsetting to this society. And it's even upsetting to ours. What's up is down, and what's down is up. This kind of reality is exactly the way that God created it. The way that he had created male and female, both in his image, both with honor and dignity. Neither to use or to exploit or to take advantage of the other, but then very quickly, sin enters the creation story and has then flipped reality upside down. So that now, kindness, now dignity, now honor— are strange. So that boldness to turn from the idolatry of the age and to proclaim Jesus as king, the king that he actually is, is actually subversive. It seems to flip but it's really just flipping the way it was created to be. It's not subversive. For Paul says in Colossians 1, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created. He has created things right side up in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created for him and through him. But that kind of reality feels disorienting. Feels disorienting to a self worshiping world and to our self worshiping ears. It upsets our sensibilities. It demands our worship move from ourselves to another, and we hate that as humans. The mob hates it too. The mob says that Paul and his new followers were acting against the decrees of Caesar. Not just they've upset the world, but they are actually now trying to pin them with a specific violation. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They're saying they are revolutionaries. They are like insurgents, they are dangerous. But as Paul will show us throughout the rest of the book of Acts, these men are good citizens. They are not trying to start some sort of worldly political revolution. They aren't protesting or making demands of their civic rights. Sometimes that's appropriate. Paul will do it, we'll continue to see him do it, but only when he's confident that greater opportunities for more preaching of the gospel will will come of his demanding of his rights. His demanding of his rights is not just so he can do whatever he wants. In fact, maybe being shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove Paul and Silas there they actually then sneak out of Thessalonica here at nighttime to get out of there not to start a revolution but let's be clear they had they had started a revolution and they actually were trying to start a revolution They weren't just risking their lives preaching a gospel that just recommends that people maybe sprinkle a little Jesus on top of their already awesome life and it'll get even better. Or sprinkle a little Jesus on top of a difficult or a lonely or a suffering life and Jesus will make it a little better. That's not something that they would be willing to go to their deaths for. What they'd be willing to go to their deaths for is a God who had lived and died for his people, unlike The other gods or goddesses, unlike Apollo and his promises of power, unlike Dionysius or Venus and their promises of forgetting pain, of finding pleasure, or even the promises of fertility and having children, unlike Mercury, god of money and wealth, those same gods and goddesses that make wild promises that then they never would keep in those days are the same goddesses that make the same promises to us. We are too enlightened to call them Apollo and Venus, Mercury, or something like that, but we still worship the same gods, the same goddesses, and yet they are, as one pastor says, slave traders, disguised as abolitionists, promising freedom when they only will deliver more and more captivity. Even politicians, even political parties that demand your unwavering loyalty— but then always underdeliver deliver in response to your loyalty. But Jesus Christ, the King of glory, will not always give you what you want, but he will give you what you need. Because what you need is himself, and he has given himself. In life, in death, the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not lack. Unlike the gods of the Greek age or ours, he does not require ongoing sacrifice, an ongoing sacrifice from you so that he might take and take and take, but because he has made sacrifice of himself, he has given you himself so that he might give and give and give and give, that we might receive and receive and receive him, life in Christ. And so Thessalonica has sent Paul and the gospel out with an angry rejection, they do not want the world set right. They like it to be upside down. But of course, not the whole city likes it that way. Some have received this gospel. And as Paul says in First Thessalonians 2, he says, "We thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the Word of God. There are some here in Thessalonica who have received the word, and their lives have fundamentally changed. So much so that their reputation of being so counter-cultural to the world around them, it has become well-known. But nevertheless, Paul is driven out of the city further, further inland and on to the west, to Berea, where they are received not with an angry rejection, but now, and secondly, they are received with hungry reception. Again, they, they get to Berea and they go straight to the synagogue. Luke tells us in verse 11 that these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, I grew up in a Bible church, Denton Bible Church in Denton, Texas. Me and Nando Bettencourt both, Denton Bible. My pastor, he preached the Bible. It was this thing. Preach the Bible, and then every facet of every ministry that trickled down from the pulpit ministry was all centered around the Word. Our youth ministry was a Bible youth ministry. As a middle schooler and as a high schooler, a youth leader could pay me no higher compliment than to call me a good Berean. And what they meant by that is that I would be someone who would personally read The scriptures, personally study the Bible. Someone who didn't just take the pastor's word for it or take the youth leaders or the other teachers' word for it, but I'd be someone or we'd be someone who was consistently and continually checking the scriptures, confirming to make sure that the Bible, that God's word was behind the teaching. It wasn't just some word of some teacher, but it was God preaching. I've even thanked many of you throughout the years When you've emailed me with a question about a sermon or even a little bit of gentle pushback that I could have been a bit more precise here or uh, I'm not so sure here, I've thanked you for being a good Berean, for demanding that the preaching of this pulpit in our church be of God's word. And I love being a member of a church like that, of such good Bereans. That that is what our culture is. We do not say or do things because that's the way we've always done them. We do not say or do things because more and more so the culture is increasingly wanting us to say or do those kinds of things. But is this what we are saying or doing because that is what God has told us about himself. It is what God has told us about ourselves. It is what God has told us about the world. I love being a member of this kind of church. I love being a member of this church full stop. And yet, in reading this paragraph, even just verse 11, a couple of dozen times this week, I think I've come to a little bit of a different understanding and appreciation of the Bereans here. Historically in my life, life, I think that I've always thought of the Bereans as like the theological watchdogs. Like when I went away to college, I was— attending different churches, and I kind of sat probably with my arms crossed cynically and probably with a bit of suspicion from the preaching that was coming from that church, preaching that I sat under, just waiting for the pastor to say something that didn't fully align with my understanding of the scriptures that then just affirmed my suspicion that he didn't understand the Bible quite as well as I did as like an 18 year old (laughs) using the Bible almost like a bear trap, like just waiting for some pastor to screw it up. Got him. But this is not the way that the Bereans listened. Check the order of what they did. Verse 11, they received the word with all eagerness. They were hungry. They were eating up the apostolic and authoritative teaching of Paul. And then, after they received the word— Then they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I think this totally flips my conception, my misconception of these Bereans, that they first had to check the scriptures to then receive it. I'll listen kind of half-heartedly here, then I'll think about that sermon a little bit, go home and check the scriptures to make so, and if so, if that passes the mustard test, passes mustard, passes mustard. I always look to Eric and Shannon. Uh, it's not in the notes. I'm just winging it here. Uh, if that passes muster, pass the biblical smell test, then I'll receive the preaching. But that is not what they do. They receive the teaching and then check the scriptures. So a few observations here. First of all, first of all, the Bereans, likely none of them actually had Bibles. They're likely, when it says that they are examining the scriptures, they are likely coming back to the synagogues day after day, referring either to the, the precious communal scrolls, like the one copy of the scriptures that the whole community shared, or referring and examining the scriptures with like the, the one or two or three rabbi or, rabbis or leaders who had the whole thing memorized. Secondly, and relatedly, they were doing this together. They were working out and examining the scriptures together. They are working through theology in community. They are not going home and then finding a few blog posts or podcasts about this given text, coming to the same firm conclusions of their favorite Christian leader, but they are coming to the conclusions of the church, of the local church, receiving the word and then working through it together. And then again... They had already received the teaching. So their examination of the scriptures probably isn't like, I'm not so sure of Paul here. Let me confirm this, but is probably more close to like the Emmaus Road Bible study. They've heard Paul preaching about why the Christ had to suffer. And so then that week, they're going back through the scriptures and saying, oh man, look, here's God's covenant with Abraham. Abraham. In Genesis 15, oh my goodness, look, here's here's the Passover in Exodus 12. Or, I've never read Isaiah 53 like this. A suffering servant who must die for the sins of his people? You've got to be kidding me. How How have I been missing this my entire life? Paul's totally right. The Christ did have to suffer and rise again. The whole Bible was now coming alive to them because of their receiving the preaching of Paul. That's not suspicion. That's not cynicism against preaching because of God's word. They're not because they know God's word, now suspicious or cynical against preaching. No, but they are joyful. They are eager. The preaching actually is a launching pad for their examining the scriptures and not the other way around. Now, of course, don't hear me wrong here. Paul tells Timothy to guard the good deposit to watch his life and doctrine. He warns the Colossians and he warns the Corinthians and others against false teachers. He excoriates the Galatians for abandoning the gospel of another teacher. He tells them to reject and condemn anyone who comes preaching a different gospel. We should not put up with any kind of preaching that is anything less than the whole counsel of God in our churches. Yes, And yet I think I'm going to shift my thinking a bit on who a good Berean is. Maybe not quite so much those who push back or who question, though that's part of being a good Berean and your emails are still welcome. But maybe a good Berean is perhaps more so just those who are just week in and week out receiving the word with eagerness, with hunger, actually receiving it. And then having been fed just a little bit, then they want more and more and they are going home throughout the week and examining the scriptures, finding more and more that confirm some of the same themes that we've heard on Sundays throughout the whole of scripture. Not going home to find things wrong with the preaching, but then connecting more and more dots on your own and in community. Applying the teaching to our own and to each other's lives in our gospel communities, in our GC conversations about what we've heard preached. Applying this in our lives together. And if that's the case, our church is just so full of good Bereans, and I love it. You guys are the best, and I love you. I love being a member of this church and just so full of people who are just so eagerly receiving God's word and then applying it and living it out together. Paul had shown up in Berea, just like he had in Thessalonica, preaching the upside down kingdom of Jesus, and the Bereans were so happy, so thrilled to leave the upside down. But if we know anything about the upside down, it likes to fight back. It wants to hold on to the way things are and to make sure that the happy and the joyful are stopped. The same Jews from Thessalonica, when they find out that Paul and Silas are in Berea, they come to Berea with the same plan as before. They whip the town up into a frenzy and convince the city that the way of Jesus is actually dangerous, is actually bad for society, is actually bad for humanity, is bad for you and bad for us. We gotta stop it. But that doesn't make any sense. Jesus the creator, he loves his creation. And he has humanity's absolute best in mind, following him in the way of joy and life, even if and when it feels like death is actually a way to life and joy. But the world comes offering joy and death when it feels like life. Stay. Stay the upside-down world invites and even demands. Stay where things feel easy are actually just a slow poison, a slow poison of collapsing in on yourself. The world says fight back, fight back against the narrow road of Christ, fight back against death, death of yourself, and it is death. The way of Christ is putting to death our own desires and our own self so that we might find life in Christ, even eternal life. The Berean crowds here in in this town, just like the Thessalonian crowds, they turn on the messengers of Jesus and they reject Jesus as king. So Paul heads down the coast to Athens, where we'll pick it up next week. Paul's sermon at the Areopagus, Mars Hill, Paul's sermon amongst humanity's wisest and most influential philosophers of the entire world, how will they receive the word of the kingdom? How will they receive it? With, with anger or with hunger? How will you receive the word of the kingdom, of the king? How will you receive Jesus as, as a mascot, as a guide, as you continue on in an upside-down world of your own making, where you are the king of that world, the queen of that world, you are the highest authority of right and wrong or good or bad. Or will you come to him in humility and let him flip the entire ship right side up? So that up is up and down is down. And yet it is a flipped world to our upset inclinations. we a world now where death is life, where humility is power and the powerful actually serve, where grace brings obedience, and obedience is actually freedom. Where we stop pretending that we just, this little speck, this little speck on this huge rock of an earth, and this earth on this tiny speck of a solar system, where we stop pretending that we are the center, and that the overwhelming gravitational pull of the sun Jesus Christ the righteous then pulls our life and worship around him to the life that we were actually created for. So let's keep reorienting ourselves. Perhaps tonight is the night that you need to orient yourself, that Jesus has come to orient your life centered around him, the king of creation, your creator and king, that you might come to him for the forgiveness of your sins for the first time. The rest of us, let's keep reorienting ourselves. For those of us in Christ, he has flipped the ship and yet we keep trying to capsize it. We need each other. We need God's word. We need the work of the spirit in our lives individually and together. We need his grace. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Praise The Lord. Let's pray. Our God, our King, triune in glory and in majesty, Father, we behold you as you are. We want to behold you as you are, and we see you as good and as right and as holy, and yet we are so forgetful. We are so forgetful of the way that you have created us to be and to live, and we keep trying to flip this thing upside down and upside down and upside down, but yet you, God the Son, Lord Jesus, have come to us to rescue us out of ourselves, to rescue us out of sin and bondage, to liberate us to righteousness and to freedom, that you might bring forgiveness and grace and mercy and love. We are so thankful. You are the king of this world, and there is no other. There is no rival. And you, Lord Jesus, deserve and demand our whole lives. And so now in this moment, we are here to freely give them. God, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would renew us, restore us to the joy of your salvation, that you might empower us to walk with Christ in humility, to walk with Christ in boldness amidst a world with fingers in their ears and with hatred in their hearts refusing to listen to you. God, we were once the same. Help us to walk boldly and with love and compassion to an unbelieving world around us. O triune God, might you get all the glory in our lives. We love you, we praise you, we thank you, we worship you, and all of these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.ChristChurchABQ.com